All right. We are in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. And if you have a Bible, you might want to turn there and kind of follow along a little bit. Mm. In the way. Yeah. Yeah. I do want to keep my eye on Christy there. <laughs> Make sure she's behaving. Okay, as I uh, spent time in John 6 this week, I was really struck by, uh, I am constantly in this book, because you know, this is the first time I've ever taught through it, but um, John's discipline as a writer really stands out to me. There's, there's nothing haphazard in his writing. He's not, he's not collecting a bunch of Jesus stories and telling them. He's not merely reciting his own memories of Jesus. It's not a memoir he's writing. He's really purposeful. He's very poked focused on get having us know exactly what he wants us to know and if you've been with us I hope by now you know well what what John wants you to know because you should have picked that up in chapter one if you've been around all that long but the very first verse of the gospel we we learn that Jesus is God and from the very first chapter John wants us to know that God became a man the word was God and the word became flesh and we know from the first chapter because of John the Baptist's words that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of that's there. And sort of since that first chapter, we've been looking at these signs. And that's John's word for miracles. He doesn't use the word miracles. He uses the word signs. We've been looking. There's seven signs, right? Everything, everything John writes is also sevens. But he talks about seven signs that John, he uses that to build a structure for the first half of the gospel. Seven signs, seven miracles. John chapter 6 has two of those signs. And last week we looked at the first sign in the chapter, which would be the fourth sign in the book. Okay, a very public sign. And then there's the fifth sign also in chapter 6, which we're going to look at today. And that's just for the disciples. That was not a big public sign. That was a, a private sign, although in a kind of a grand place. So the public sign was what? The feeding of the multitude, right, at least 5,000, 5,000 men plus women and children it says, so there were, could have been 10 or 20,000 people on that remote hillside, which today we call the Golan Heights, that's where that was on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So the fifth sign, um, that sign of feeding the 5,000 is very famous. The fifth sign, which we're going to look at today, is also very famous. It's uh, Jesus walking on the water. And I don't know how many jokes I've heard and cartoons I've seen about walking Jesus on the water. I saw one the other day where Mary's trying to give Jesus a bath and he's standing on the water in the bathtub. I mean, all those kinds, you know, there's all those kinds of jokes that are out there about that. And walking on the water is so well known, it's become a cultural term, right? You see it used a lot, like, I bet that guy thinks he can walk on water. I mean, that's exactly, you know, this guy thinks he's God or something. So people use that all the time. So it's a part of our language, it's a part of our, our world. But at the time, at the time, this particular miracle was not widely known. It was not public. It was uh, seen only by the 12 apostles, and it was designed for them. So it was for them as well as they're the only witnesses of it. So does this miracle, does this sign teach us anything ab about the Lord? And oh yeah, it tells us, tells us quite a bit. So it reinforces everything we've learned so far in John's gospel about the divine nature of Christ. He is God in human flesh. And he is over the laws of nature. He can bend the laws of nature to his will as he wishes. He can do 
anything he wants because of who he is. He completely heals that invalid we saw in the last chapter. He multiplies bread. He walks on water. These are all ways that he demonstrates that he is God in human flesh. But this chapter also is very much about the followers of Jesus, including the 12 and others who are very excited about Jesus and are kind of taken up with him. So that's really the focus of chapter 6 is the disciples. So these things, these miracle signs are wonderful. They're uh, amazing to think about and ponder, but there's a purpose for all of these things appearing in John chapter 6. So it's, John 6 is really a, a hard look at who is a true follower of Jesus of Nazareth and who is not. Because a lot of people liked him, wanted to be around him, pursued him, even aggressively pursued him, who were not true disciples of his. And that's one of the things we're going to see in this chapter. This chapter divides people into two groups. Those who will follow Jesus where he leads and those who will follow him because they have their own agenda and will not follow him where he leads. Those are two very different things. And all of you want to sit there and think about, am I following him where he leads or am I following him for my own purposes? Because there's a big difference between those two things. Okay? So John 6 is also a pivotal chapter in John telling the story of Jesus' ministry. Not only does the miracle of the 5,000 conclude with Jesus' popularity like going through the roof because you don't do a miracle in front of 20,000 people and nothing happens. I mean, amazing things start to happen, right? He's absolutely at the, the height of his popularity from that miracle. But it, as we saw last time, it's kind of a nationalistic frenzy it builds up in the, in the crowd that was there that day. Uh, so there's excitement at, at such a pitch that these people from Galilee really wanted to force Jesus to lead them as their king. They wanted to make him king. Make him king. You know, make him want to be king or push him up there to the front or something like that. So in the first part of the chapter, he is absolutely on the top. He's everything they want. He's our man. But the chapter concludes, chapter 6 concludes with him being abandoned by most of his followers. So from the height to the depth in terms of what we would call popularity, right? That's the story John wants to tell. So Jesus is at the pinnacle of popularity and there's a quick, rather precipitous decline in followers, at least in this area of Galilee. It's pretty dramatic, actually. So the big lesson here is you can't have your own Jesus. Jesus is Jesus, and he can have you, but you can't have the Jesus you just want. That's really the big theme of the chapter here. Um, You can't have your own Jesus. They couldn't have their own Jesus. I can't have my own Jesus. You can't have your own Jesus. We have to take Jesus as he is or not have him at all. You can't make him up or adjust him to your own taste. So last time we ended with Jesus withdrawing himself from the crowd up to a higher place on the mountain. So in verse 15 of chapter 6, so Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. So I'm sure that his awareness of the leaders of the crowd wanting to take him by force and make him king, he felt the need to pray. 
And to, so he goes back up into the mountain for a time with the Father, just to be with the Father alone. And in verse 16, John describes the disciples going down to the sea and getting into a boat to go back to the other side, the western side of the Sea of Galilee, where Capernaum is, that's Jesus' headquarters. So that's where they're, they're heading back. John doesn't tell us, so now I'm going to, you know, Matthew, Mark, and John all tell the story of Jesus walking on the water, but they give some different details, so I'm going to pull in Matthew and Mark to help us, okay, a little bit. So, but John's theme is the one I'm going to follow. So, um, Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus is the one that sent them off, and then he remained behind. So, Mark 6.45, it says, immediately, that's Mark's favorite word, immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat. So, he's putting them in the boat. And go ahead of him to the other side while he himself was sending the crowd away. After bidding them farewell, he left for the mountain to pray. So that gives us more information about how that went down. He didn't just go back up into the mountain. He put his disciples in the boat, sent them off to the other side of the sea. Somehow he got the crowd to stop for a moment making him king and told them they needed to disperse or go home or whatever. So he got that done. So the Lord is the one that launched them off, if you will. He took it upon himself then to send the crowd away. Then he went up to pray. So John 6.15 is just a really condensed version of, of that. And he did withdraw to the mountain by himself alone, but he got everybody else moving first. That's, I guess, the easiest way to say it. Now, I found that pretty interesting. Some people have suggested, and I think with good reason, that Jesus may have been protecting the 12 disciples from this nationalistic fervor that was capturing the crowd there. Whatever, whoever started that and got it going, let's make him king, that whole thing. So John Phillips, who's a pretty creative commentator on the Bible, but um, sometimes he uses imagination a little too much, but I think he's right here. He says, he, Jesus, had to consider the, he, in other words, he had to think about with this desire to make him king, this crowd movement to do that. He had to consider the ambition of Judas Iscariot the impetuosity of Simon Peter, the zealotry of Simon the Canaanite, the tempers of James and John. It would never do for these disciples to fall in with the wishes of the crowd and try to force his hand into accepting a crown he did not want and had no intention of accepting. So he sent the disciples away and by sheer force of character sent the excited multitudes home. Now that's a bit speculative, right? But... Um, there really isn't another explanation for why he did what he did. I think that's actually a, a pretty accurate grasp on maybe what's going on there. So, I, so I, I think he's onto something with that. What did the disciples, this is why I think that, what did the disciples argue about regularly, even at the Last Supper? Their favorite topic. Who's the greatest, right? Which one of them is the greatest, right? So that was their favorite topic. So James and John's mother even went to Jesus and said, would you let one of my sons sit on your right hand and, and your, my other son on your left hand in, in the kingdom? Mom. <laughs> True stage mother, right? She's a kingdom mother. But what, it, what did that represent? Pr positions of prestige. She was goading them too for that. So everybody thought the kingdom was coming soon. Jesus is the Messiah. He's going to set up the kingdom. All 12 of them thought they were going to be big shots in the kingdom. That's, that's what they knew was going to happen, right? So they're thinking that way. Um, and Jesus told them they would. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Peter asked Jesus this, behold, 
We have left everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Gosh, Peter, come on. <laughs> so Peter says, we've abandoned everything. We've abandoned our business. We've spending all our time with you. We've let our, our salaries go. Um, we're, we're, what's gonna, what, what is there going to be for us? And Jesus says this. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. Good answer. I like that answer. So it's a true promise, but it's going to come later, much later. It's going to come in the kingdom after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the church age, which we're living in right now. Then will come the kingdom populated with people from every tribe and tongue. And then Christ will establish his kingdom on earth as promised so often in the Old Testament. So it's after the end of the church age when he comes back to reign. So yeah, talk of making Jesus king that afternoon. I could see that appealing to this part of the apostles that are so eager already to have their position as his top men, you know, in that kingdom. I can see Jesus being worried that this nationalistic fervor talk going on would infect them that way. Yeah, get them even more going that way because he knows that's not going to happen anytime real soon. They had a lot to learn, in other words. And they had this normal human desire for prestige. And Jesus is worried about that infecting them even more. So Jesus didn't want the great miracle of producing food for thousands of people to cut short their training and their learning. And the things he wanted them to get. Or cause them to focus on what is not coming right away. Because that kingdom isn't coming right away. Or to get all caught up in a view of the kingdom that is very far from what God is doing. These, these Galileans that wanted Jesus to be king wanted a totally different king than the kind of king he's going to be even when he does come in glory and power. Because he's a king of righteousness. They just wanted a leader to kick the Romans out and establish a typical kingdom of Israel like it was under the Maccabees. That's all they were worried about. So wanting the kingdom as you want it and not as God wants it, that is a spiritual disaster. And he's protecting them from that, I think. So sending them off likely did protect them from some very disturbing and wayward ideas that he didn't want them embracing. So what would the disciples be thinking at the end of this long, incredible day where Jesus just fed 20,000 people? What would they be thinking? Think about that. We aren't really told if they picked, on, picked up on the fact that Jesus had these concerns about the uh, intentions of the crowd to make him king. If, we don't know that. I suspect they didn't pick up on it in the way Jesus wanted them to. So as they left the shore, what were they feeling rowing across the boat back to their headquarters? It's been a pretty good day. <laughs> it's been a great day. It's been amazing. I think they saw things looking up. And remember, they had just come off a big preaching tour where Jesus had sent them out two by two after giving them authority over every illness and sickness and affliction and demonic powers and even able to raise the dead. They just had done that and they just got back and as soon as they got back, John the Baptist had been executed. Then they come across the lake for a vacation. Jesus is going to say, we need to come away and be alone for a while and pray and talk. And then the crowds came and then Jesus had compassion on the crowds. So he taught them and then he fed them all. And all of that, all of that just happened within a, a couple of days here. So it's an amazing thing. So these huge crowds, all of that is just getting them 
wow, it's happening. The kingdom is coming, you know, he's, he's super popular. All of that. We picked up 12 baskets of abundant food left over after feeding all of those people. They're talking about the miracle of all of that. The biggest miracle ever, in scope anyway, it was the biggest miracle they had seen. It was incredible. So things are humming. Momentum, it's building, right? And they're exhausted. They were exhausted after the tour. They went over there for a vacation. Then they, were, they had to work with the crowd all day and feeding everybody and doing this whole thing. And, but they're amazed. They're exhausted and amazed at what had happened. They'd seen miracles before, but now it's at a whole different level, this feeding of the 5,000 stuff. So I would love to have heard their conversations that day. Let's get in line for one of the lesser apostles. So it's a short line. I mean, we can ask him, maybe Thomas. I don't think that many people would be in line for Thomas. Except some doubters. <laughs> but I think, I, think, I think the apostles probably felt the energy and the elation of the crowd. Even if at that point they didn't see the dark side of it, I think they captured the, the energy of the crowd and what they, were, what they were about. So Jesus sends them off. They're on their journey about halfway across and then everything goes south. Everything starts to crash. Jesus sent them into a storm. All right, so here's how John tells it, verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind blowing. So when John says in verse 17, Jesus had not yet come to them, he's just rem He's reminding his readers who would know that famous story that they're in the boat alone, the 12. Jesus is not with them, right? They're without him. Alone with a strong wind pushing against them. So they're rowing and the wind is working against them. So the Sea of Galilee, you know, is not huge. It's seven or eight miles across and it's, got, it's 200 miles below sea level and it's surrounded by mountains all, pretty much all around it. So the winds come soaring down those mountains and they really kick up the water. It's also not that deep, so the water moves pretty easily. So you, can, you get some pretty rough seas at different times on there that can happen pretty quickly too. Now these, some of these guys were fishermen, right? So Matthew, the tax collector, is probably like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. But Peter and John and James, you know, those guys that had worked at the lake many years, they would have seen this as fairly typical experience. They know how to sail in those things. It can be very dangerous sometimes, but there's no particular hint of danger in this particular situation. They don't talk about danger here. Um, so I don't think that's what's going on. Sometimes you'll hear that in this story, but I don't, it doesn't say that. So, but they're beat. I mean, they're just wiped out. They've been rowing and they're trying to get across the, the, against the wind of this, this lake, you know, and, the, and so um, it's pushing them the wrong way. So the wind's blowing east really hard and they're rowing west really hard against that so Jesus um, sent them he sent them into that I think to have a dose of realism in other words after this incredible day and all the popularity and all these things storms do come and they're moving into a storm don't have unrealistic expectations when things are going well or seeming to go well in this life the kingdom of God is about God's work, not man's work, right? It's going to be hard. Ministry in this world of any kind is hard. 
It's difficult work. Lots of disappointments, lots of sorrows, lots of suffering even. So, but keep rowing. Keep rowing. So that's, I think that's what he's teaching them here. Battling the wind is good medicine for men who might be thinking they're going to be sitting on thrones pretty soon when that's not what's going to happen soon. So he's sort of, if I can use this expression, taking the wind out of their sails. (laughs) Thank you. So they have years of hard work ahead, years of hard work ahead, and, and sacrifice. Most of them will die for Christ, it, horribly. Uh, Peter, we know, was crucified upside down. I mean, those are the things that are coming to them. Martyrdom. Everything isn't looking up from a human perspective. If you, f- if you followed the lives of the apostles, you would say, wow, that, that's a pretty sad miserable life. Paul describes his apostolic life a couple of times in, the, in his letters and it's just a misery. It's just suffering and suffering and suffering with great joy in doing what God wants him to do and seeing God save people. So the king uh, himself has to be slain for the sins of the world and then after that great persecution is going to follow. So they need to grow a, a, a deep faith that will be dependent on the Lord in all kinds of circumstances. I think that's where he's leading them on this particular day. They need to grow a deeper faith. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He said, spiritual blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. There's a lot of bees there. (laughs) Spiritual blessings must be balanced with burdens and battles. Otherwise, we may become pampered children instead of mature sons and daughters. And God wants us to be mature sons and daughters. And the only way to become mature is to go through trials and difficult times and learn to navigate them. If you're pampered all your life, you're not going to be a mature person. And so that's part of it. I think that's right. I think that's what's going on. I've never heard of a believer of deep faith who had not faced many trials. I've never heard of one. I've never met one. You know, I, I, everything's just great. I've always been great. I've just wonderful great. And I have this great commanding faith. It just doesn't work that way. God always puts us through testing and through trials and through fires and all kinds of difficult things. So Jesus wants them to realize that hard times are not over. They are coming. And he wants them to know also this. I will be with you. He will be with us. And it's at this point that Mark tells us something really interesting. He gives some more details. So this is Mark chapter 6 verse 47. You can just listen. When it was evening, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. Who's he? Jesus. Good. I want to make sure you got that. Seeing them, seeing them. Wait wait a minute. They're in the middle of the sea. There's miles away, and it's dark, and he's on the land, seeing them, straining at the oars, for the wind was against them. At about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. And he intended to pass them by. (laughs) So while Jesus was at this place of prayer up on the mountain, he can see them straining at the oars miles away, even though it's very dark. He knows where they are. He can see them. They're miles away. They're in the dark, but he can see them. How did he do that? I mean, I know Jesus can see me. He's in heaven now, right? But... This is really fascinating. He knows where they are while he was incarnate as a man on earth, right? So he is true man, but he's God in the form of a bondservant. 
So is, is this knowledge that he has something that he can access as a, as a man? Or did the Lord reveal it to him, his father reveal it to him in prayer while he was in prayer to the father? I mean, these are the mysteries of the incarnation of the son of God that are kind of hard to grasp sometimes and know how that all actually worked. You can't, it's hard to probe the depths of what it was like being Jesus as God in human flesh. Because he obviously had human limitations, but at the same time, he, he knows things, right? And all of that. So, he, uh, so the Lord may have revealed this to him. He may just have wanted to know, so he knows, right? Those kind of things. But however he experienced or received this knowledge, he saw them struggling at the oars against the wind. So he decides to cross the lake right by them. Now another miracle's coming. So this is like a 24-hour miracle marathon going on here with all the stuff that's about to happen and has happened. So Jesus doesn't only walk on the water, but the winds are high, the sea is rough. By the time he reaches them, it's the fourth watch of the night. Say, what is that? That's like 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So if they left when it was kind of dark, it would have been about maybe 8 p.m. or something like that. And they're still rowing. They're only halfway across a pretty, pretty not at that far of a lake. They've only gone a few miles out. They're still rowing really hard. It's like been eight hours or more, you know. Uh, that's, that's a hard lesson. They're straining at the oars. They're trying to move this boat. And by this time, by 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., there, there could be a hint of morning light starting to just peek over the thing. You know, Laura and I walk really early in the morning, and the sun's always just starting to shine because I, like I like it early, and she likes it as late as possible so she can see where she's <laughs> stepping. And so we're always struggling with that. But, but it's, um, it, could, it could be just, they, might, they didn't have flashlights either. So, um, <laughs> so there's another detail in Mark that, and and I just want to emphasize this one. See them, seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, and he intended to pass them by. I, <laughs> that part kills me, and nobody ever talks about it. He intended to go past them. He wasn't going to get in the boat. He was taking a shortcut to get to the western shore before they got there, so when they got there, he could greet them. That was like his intention originally. So he's planning to walk past them on stormy seas to be at the shore before they are. So he goes by close enough that they can see him, but they don't know who it is. They see a figure walking on the water, so they freak out. They can't make it out. So all three Gospels record this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all say that the disciples were out of their heads with fear. They were terrified by this. They were, they, what is that? <laughs> they all agree. They were, they're afraid because they see a man walking on the sea, and they think he's a ghost. This is how John says it, verse 19, John 6, 19. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. And Matthew puts it this way, Matthew 14, 26. They were frightened, saying, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. So this is their worst horror movie, come to life. So they're really terrified, and some of these guys have been on the lake their whole lives. They've never seen anybody walking <laughs> by the boat while they were doing that. That's, yeah, so they're impossible. So if, because it's impossible, it had to be a ghost. It had to be some kind of weird manifestation, a spirit or something. So Mark says, but immediately he spoke with them and said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And John simplifies this in verse 20 to just, it is I, do not be afraid. So all three Gospels record those, th those words. It is I, do not be afraid. 
Now, most of you know that something else happened before Jesus gets into the boat. Probably the most well-known part of this incident is the Matthew version because it's great for sermons. It's a great sermon topic. And, and what is it, do you know? It's not in John's account. It's not in Mark's account. Matthew tells us, Peter, we sang about it, or, or you mentioned it earlier, that Peter walks on water, right? So that's not recorded in John's gospel nor in Mark's gospel. But Matthew tells that story. That's where Jesus says, take courage, it is I do not be afraid. And Peter speaks up. This is Matthew 14, 28. Peter said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He's still not sure it's him. He said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Just pull, don't, don't talk. <laughs> no, he didn't say that. Why did you doubt? So this part of the story that Matthew includes makes for great sermons. I mean, that's why it's so well known because it's about faith, right? And keeping your eyes on Jesus no matter what the circumstances are around you. That's the great message from those, those great sermons. And it's a good message. It's a wonderful one. And that's what Matthew's intending. That's not John's message. That's why he's not including it. That is a great message, but that's not John's message. John wants our attention on the signs, the clear marks of Jesus' divinity divinity and how those signs relate to those who follow him that's what it's about so John has a different emphasis which takes a, a very long chapter chapter 6 is very long takes a very long chapter to unfold what he wants to share from this so the truth is signs miracles get attention they get people's attention but they don't save they don't save. It is man's nature to exalt his own interest over God's interest. To see God as a servant, not as a king. Miracles, miracles should save because you should go, oh my goodness, there is, there is God and I'm going to follow him. But they don't. And they don't because of fallen human nature. God might do all kinds of miraculous things and that might convince people that God exists, but God doesn't care if you think he exists or not, if you're not honoring him as God. If you don't humble yourselves before God in repentance and faith, it doesn't matter to him if you believe he exists. Of course he exists. He knows he exists. You know. So you see that early in the Bible with the Exodus generation, how this response, God delivered them with incredible miracles, bigger miracles than what Jesus is doing, outstanding signs, Things that are unquestioned, you know, plague after plague after plague and deliverance and the blood over the door and the angel of death passing over and the firstborn of every Egyptian just dropping dead and bringing them out. And then they're grumbling in the wilderness, right? And they're making golden calves and worshiping idols and having orgies. And uh, why didn't the miracles just straighten them up instantly? Because of human nature. And so you see the same thing 1,400 years later. Jesus comes on the scene and, and all the years in between. But miracles, signs, and wonders rarely lead men to exalt God over themselves. To give God his due. To give him the honors that he has earned and he deserves just for who he is and all the wonderful things he's done. So we saw that in the crowd's response to the miracle of the loaves and the fish. It's the same thing. It's not a, it's not, it didn't humble them. It made them want what they wanted more. And here's, an, here's a person we can take for our purposes to get what we want more. 
So it didn't humble them to bring about saving faith. It just increased their covetousness, if you will, for their own way. And if one doesn't believe, if the heart is not right, then signs aren't going to make it right. Miracles are not going to make your heart right. So John chapter 6 is devoted to explaining what does make your heart right. That's what the chapter is all about. Well, let's finish the story. So here the Gospels differ a little bit also in the details, which are pretty interesting. So both Matthew and Mark record that once Jesus got into the boat, the wind stopped. So after he gets Peter up and they get back in the boat, the wind just stops. So that's, that's a fortuitous thing. There's his power again. So all that rowing against the wind immediately stopped. They didn't have to row against the wind anymore. But get this, Matthew says those in the boat, he says they worshiped Jesus when the wind stopped and said, you are certainly God's son. So that's a natural reaction because they're confronted again with a great miracle. The wind just stopped immediately. Mark says quite differently, when the wind stopped, they were greatly astonished. But then Mark makes his own comment and he says, he says, this showed that their hearts were hardened and they had gained no insight from the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. So Mark, Mark doesn't deny that they said, you're the son of God and they were astonished. He says they were astonished, he says, but they didn't learn anything from it because their hearts were hard. That's a pretty interesting statement. They're super amazed by what happened, but are they super amazed to the point where they're worshiping Jesus or is it that their heart is hardened? Because it seems like Matthew says one thing and Mark says the other thing. It's actually both. They're, they're hard-hearted and for Mark, that means they're dull of understanding. They, they didn't get what they should have gotten out of this. Jesus is trying to teach them something. They're not picking up on it. But they are saying, my gosh, you, you are certainly God's son because it's an amazing thing that happened. So Jesus had created bread. They saw that the day before. Lots of bread. I mean, enough to feed 20,000 people, right? He multiplied five little round loaves enough to feed a good-sized town at, this, at one moment. But here they are, greatly astonished. That's how my Bible says it. They were greatly astonished. The Greek text is even stronger. It says, they were amazed and marveling exceedingly beyond measure. How do you describe that in English? Blown away. I don't know. I mean, they were, maybe that's not a good word to use in that circumstance. But um, they, they were overwhelmed by it, completely overwhelmed by it, just marveling by it. They should have known from the bread experience the day before that nature is the servant of Jesus. They should have learned that yesterday, right? And, they, and all the other miracles he's done. He doesn't have any limitations. That hasn't fully registered yet. They're still amazed. So there's the bread miracle. There's the walking on the water miracle. There's the wind miracle, just stopping the wind. And then there's one more. There's one more thing. John ends his account this way. It is I, do not be afraid. Then verse 21, so they were willing to receive him into the boat after they figured out who he was. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So they're in the middle of the lake. It's miles to go. And as soon as he gets in the boat, not only does the wind stop, they've arrived. Wow. He must have the enterprise up there beaming people around. <laughs> or he's God the Son, right? So... 
That's, that's another miracle. That's a fourth miracle in this story. Now, John doesn't call all of these signs, but they are definitely signs, right? They were immediately at the land, the place they were aiming to be. So when Jesus got into the boat, they were somewhere in the middle of the lake. Now they're at the shore. So his divine nature is being revealed quite dramatically within 24 hours. I mean, just this one period of time. Miracles, signs, they were all around. It was a heady, heady time for them indeed. But while being amazed at miracles, while that's perfectly fine, that's not going to be the norm. That's not going to be the norm. The 12 are going to face great challenges. They're going to suffer a lot in their lives. Contrary winds are ahead in a metaphorical sense for the rest of their lives. They're going to be dealing with difficult times. And so John, in the next section turns his attention back to that crowd because they're following. They're following along the shore. They, they know Jesus' headquarters is in Capernaum and they're coming around to see him again. They wanted to make him king. They're not done. So their worldly vision of what should happen with him is about to clash with what he is all about, his true spiritual purpose. And he's going to lose a lot of followers. Jesus is about to lose a lot of followers. And the 12 disciples are going to have to make a choice. Are we going to go with all those disappointed people? Or are we going to stay with Jesus? Stay with Jesus or abandon the cause and get back to fishing and doing whatever else we were doing. Jesus will not be led by a crowd. He had compassion on that crowd. But compassion doesn't support people in their delusions, sins, and personal desires. It, that's not how it works. Compassion always tells the truth. So the showdown begins next time. <laughs> but that will be in two weeks because we have a special speaker next week. And I think you'll enjoy him very much. So hang on to everything we said and be ready in two weeks. Okay, we'll continue. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for Christ and his love for his own men, not loving them to give them everything they want, but loving them to make them the best men they can be. And that's what we really can draw from this. There are many storms. There are many contrary winds in life. And that doesn't mean you don't see us and see us rowing and working our way through these things, Father. You do, and when the time is right, you come and you change things or fix things or help us and give us the strength to persevere. And we thank you for that. We just pray we would um, always see your purpose and your will above our own and that we would be faithful to do your will no matter what. In your name we pray, amen. <laughs>